This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. And in this episode, I'm talking with someone whose career as a musician eventually led him to a life in the restaurant business. Stephen Satterfield was raised in Savannah, Georgia, where he grew up as the only member of the family allowed in his grandmother's kitchen. But while he was interested in cooking from a young age, it was only after a long run in the 90s dream pop band Seely that he realized his true calling was food. He went on to open a beloved restaurant in Atlanta called Miller Union, where he developed a creative menu that led with vegetables and followed the seasons. Now Miller Union is celebrating its 14th year. Satterfield has garnered all sorts of recognition, including a James Beard Award. And he's just released his second cookbook, Vegetable Revelations, Inspiration for Produce Forward Cooking. We'll talk about all that and the time when Mick Jagger walked into his restaurant on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Stephen Satterfield, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Well, congrats on the new cookbook. It's called Vegetable Revelations. It's beautifully done, just like your last cookbook, Root to Leaf. Thanks. It's been a a journey, and I'm really excited to get it out into the world. Well, so Stephen, we're going to get to the cookbook in a minute, but I wanted to start out just talking about your hometown of Savannah, Georgia. Tell me a little bit about the house where you grew up and what that town means to you. Oh, sure. I lived in a neighborhood on the south side. I went to Windsor Forest High School, public school that was pretty big. It was a great place to grow up. It was the kind of neighborhood where all the kids and families knew each other and you'd just kind of run around and play for hours and nobody was really worried about where you were as long as you came home for dinner. My parents were both teachers and We had a pretty big family. There was four siblings total, including myself. So a lot of activity and action at all times. But just being on the coast and being near the water and the marshes, it's got a very specific feel to it. And I always get a very nostalgic feeling when I go there. I wanted to ask about that. I mean, Savannah is so known for being on the coast and being connected to the marsh. And you just think about all the food that comes out of the marsh. Was that something that you were aware of growing up there? Oh, yeah. My dad had a boat and we would go out on the weekends and go crabbing with chicken necks and sometimes have way more than we could ever deal with. We would go down to the dock and get some fresh shrimp or go to an oyster roast in the wintertime. That was a big thing in January. Socially, people that had a coastal or riverside dock would often just harvest cluster oysters and roast them on a big char grill. And it was just like the old school burlap bags and spread the newspaper out on the table and just grab your shucking knife. I didn't appreciate it that much when I was a kid, but as I got to be a teenager, I started to get a little more adventurous with my eating. (laughs) Yeah, it takes a minute to get a kid to take on their first oyster. (laughs) Yeah. Stephen, Savannah is such a food town now. It's kind of known as a great food town. There's some incredible restaurants there. But growing up, was that 
the case, I'm guessing there weren't quite as many options. Not really. I mean, so I was in high school in the mid to late 80s. There weren't many options. There were a couple of old school restaurants that were around. There was one place that we used to go to for seafood in Thunderbolt. It was called Teeple's. They had the tables with the hole cut in the middle with the trash can in the center <laughs> yeah. so that if you're eating crab or shrimp, all your debris just goes rolled up in the newspaper and down the middle. Are they still around? No, they're not. That was one of those places that was such a treasure, but it was definitely like a dying breed of restaurant, family owned and really small. I think a Bubba Gump's opened down the street and it kind of killed it. So Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, when you think about home cooking, who was the person in your family that was really known for their cooking? I would definitely say it was my grandmother on the maternal side. She lived in Asheville, North Carolina. We spent a lot of time up there. She was an impeccable cook. I mean, she was one of those people that just had the Midas touch. Everything was always perfect, but it was super simple. And there was some technique and nuance to her food that was just kind of passed down. And anybody on my mom's side will tell you, we all have really fond memories of her food. She made biscuits every single morning. She had a whole case of jams and jellies and pickles and preserves in her basement. She was just really in tune with the seasons. She had a garden that she harvested food from. And was always bartering with her neighbors with different produce items. One of her neighbors grew some corn and she would get some corn from them and make a swap of some beans or something like that. We also spent a lot of time on the front porch shelling peas and stringing beans and shucking corn because that was really a requirement. If you're going to eat at her home, you have to help do the work, you know, earn your keep. I can't believe she made biscuits every morning. Every morning. She really did. In fact, when I was young, I used to watch her do it and I would try to help her. And she used a little juice glass to cut them out on the counter. I mean, she would whip those things together in like five minutes or less and never measured a thing. She just did it so frequently that she just knew what she was doing. She made her dough really wet. It had a lot of buttermilk in it. She baked it in the hottest setting on the oven. We would wake up and there would be the smell of hot biscuits wafting through her home. And she would have a little jar of strawberry rhubarb preserves from the spring that she made. And she would just butter them up and leave all the stuff out for you to make your own. But I found out later in life that nobody was really allowed to help her in the kitchen, but she would let me do it because I just showed an interest and I kept trying. And she somehow let her guard down with me and let me help. I didn't know that was not allowed. I just was curious as to what she was doing. And I was, I mean, I was enamored with her and and her food really spoke to me. So I wanted to learn more at an early age and it definitely sunk in. I feel like when I cook, when I'm really focused and working on something, I feel she's guiding me and holding my hand. What was her name? Hilda Duckworth. (laughs) We called her Ducky. (laughs) Ducky. I love that. What a classic Southern grandmother name. (laughs) Stephen, did you have some notion that you were really into food at that time. Could you tell, okay, I'm really interested in this. I want to know more. I want to know how to do it. I think my interest in food was gradual. I was the pickiest eater when I was a kid. My mom had a really hard time getting me to try things and eat new things. And I don't know what changed, but it was definitely a gradual interest in food. And anytime I ate at my grandmother's, we were all going to eat everything because it was just perfect. But I was never afraid to cook. And I was always eager to like try making new things, but I didn't 
want to always eat something that didn't appeal to me. When I was pretty young, I used to make layer cakes and stuff and make a huge mess in the kitchen just because I thought it was interesting and fun. I don't know where I got that from. And I'm certainly not a pastry chef, but I just liked doing it. And I had my mom order me the Betty Crocker recipe file. It was like a box that had a flip lid and it had all these different recipe cards that had a picture on the front and the recipe on the back. Each chapter had a different style of food. I didn't really make that much from it, but I just learned about the different cuisines from these cards. I used to love to make weird concoctions of stuff that just smelled good to me. (laughs) When I was a teenager, I actually used to make dinner for the family. My mom certainly appreciated it because she could take a break. And so I sort of just gradually got into food and I was always comfortable in the kitchen. And when I went to college, I went to Georgia Tech. I would sometimes cook in my dorm room or eventually I moved into a rental house with some friends and we would cook all the time. I lived in Paris my final year of school and I was constantly cooking in my apartment. And I just became really self-sufficient with food and I was definitely able to feed myself and start trying new things. So it was very gradual, but there was definitely always an interest. Well, I love that it all goes back to Betty Crocker. (laughs) You got to start somewhere. (laughs) So, Stephen, I want to talk to you a little bit about music. You had a whole career in music before you opened your own restaurant, and you studied classical music for a while, and then you were in a band called Sealy that became kind of a big deal in the 90s. What were some of the highlights of that experience for you? Wow, it was insane. I mean, I had graduated from Georgia Tech in 92, and that summer, I just wanted to take a break and kind of think about life and figure out if I really wanted to pursue architecture or not. That was what I studied. I had grown up playing classical music as a kid and a teenager. I was pretty serious about it. I had a private tutor. I was in the Savannah Symphony Orchestra. One of my first paid jobs was actually playing in the Savannah Theater Company in the orchestra pit when I was 17, able to drive. And I was playing bass clarinet in a quintet for the musical Something Happened on the Way to the Forum. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that one from the 1960s, but... Wow, so lots of instruments. Yeah, we had a piano in the house. I never took piano lessons, but I used to figure out how to play it and songs by listening. And I played woodwinds, mostly clarinet and bass clarinet, but I would do sight reading in front of judges behind a screen to try out for a part or whatever. So it was nice to come back to music in my... 20s, but with a different approach. You know, playing classical music, you're studying the masters and you're learning all these different styles from different composers at different eras. But when I was in college and high school, I was listening to a bunch of modern music and college radio. And it was fun actually composing my own music in a modern style. And I learned how to play guitar for the first time that summer after I graduated. And I became obsessed because I had only ever been able to play one note at a time on a woodwind instrument or in some kind of ensemble where you rely on other people to make, you know, multiple notes. And guitar, you know, you have six strings and so you can make this really full sound or you can do one string at a time. There's so much versatility. And I definitely gravitated to rhythm guitar and I just started writing songs. I would just sit on my couch and just hammer out stuff. And I would be humming things in my head. And then I, a friend of mine who was in school with me, she was an accomplished guitar player. She kind of taught me some tips and tricks and started noodling around with me. And we were making these really cool 
intersections together and we found a drummer and we just started exploring like what does it sound like to play in a modern band we found a bass player she also sang i started singing and then we made a demo and we sent it to some labels just for fun to see what would happen and didn't hear back from most of them but one of them actually replied and it was this little indie label in london called two pure and we were so shocked to hear from them they were the launching pad for bands like Stereo Lab or PJ Harvey. And we're super interested in what we were doing. And they came to see us play. And the next day we met them for lunch and they had a record contract that they just put in front of us. And they were like, we want to sign you. You would be the first American band to sign our label. And we were blown away because it was like a fairy tale for an aspiring musician. And we cut a record with them. We recorded in the summer of 1996, by the time all that came to fruition. And we recorded with a guy named John McIntyre. He was the drummer for a band called Tortoise on a label called Thrill Jockey. And we were big Tortoise fans. They were an instrumental band that were pretty avant-garde. And we were shocked that we were able to work with him. You know, we've sent our demo to him and he was like, yeah, let's do it. And so during the Atlanta Olympics, we left to go to Chicago and recorded for two weeks. And it was really, really amazing experience. And we were licensed through American Def Jam. So it was kind of big distribution. We were immediately on college radio, getting airplay all over the country. We started touring and people would show up and knew who we were. And we were like, how is this possible? We would be nothing without that label or without the radio stations playing the songs. And we had a, a really incredible time touring with other bands that we were big fans of. And it was just like a dream come true. And it was short-lived. I think we did it for about five years. But during that time, we made some great friendships and we really grew and we took it very seriously. I mean, we rehearsed constantly. We bought a van to tour in. We had tons of equipment and it was just a very inspiring time. During that time, however, I wasn't making a ton of money. So I did have to supplement with something to pay my bills. So you were working in some restaurants. That's right. That's right. That's how I got into the restaurant business. Yeah. <laughs> well, you must have thought for a while there, you know, this is it. I'm going to be a rock star. This is my career and this is where I'm going. I think that there was always the sense that that could be a possibility, but there was always a reality check too, because we saw how much we had to work and the little monetary return. I mean, when you go on tour, you do have to spend a lot of money. You're buying gas, you're buying food for everybody, lodging, and unless you're playing sold out shows, which sometimes we were, but we were mostly playing small venues. And so it was just, we never really hit the tipping point where we were raking in the money. After about five years of that, we were like, we're all getting closer to our thirties. How much longer can we do this? You know, some of us want to buy a house and it just became more of a reality check. Like, okay, maybe we should explore other things. I did actually do some other musical projects after Sealy broke up. I had another project called Silver Lakes that was just more of a solo thing. And it was kind of more of a poppier project that was geared towards maybe getting some licensing deals for TV or commercials or whatever. I mean, the music was fun to make and it was great, but it was a little more accessible, less edgy or experimental. And that was semi-successful, but again, never really reached that pinnacle where I could say, okay, I'm, I don't have to work anymore. I'm just going to do music, <laughs> which is work, but it's fun. Yeah, I never really considered working in a restaurant as a long-term career. It was always to me, like so many people view it as a more of a transient thing. Like, oh, I can do this for a little while and then I'll move on to something else. And it wasn't until a little later that I started 
thinking of it as more of like a viable option for a distinguished career. After the break, I'll talk more with Stephen Satterfield about how he moved from a career in music to a career in food. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the James Beard Award-winning chef and author, Stephen Satterfield. You know, I've talked to a couple people on this podcast, like Chidi Kumar and Trisha Yearwood, who love music and cooking. And I just think that's such an extraordinary gift to be able to do both. What are some things that making music and cooking have in common for you? Oh, I think there's a lot of similarities. They both have to be experienced through time. So, you know, that's a unique quality about both of them. They're they're kind of ephemeral, especially live music. Live music is much like eating at a restaurant because you're going to be presented with something and consume it, whether it's through your ears or through your mouth. And it's over when it's over, but you get a feeling, right? And I think that's the thing that is so cool about both, that they can be presented in a way that can give you an impression and a feeling, you know, can make you excited or revved up or calm and relaxed or whatever it may be. There's a lot of different emotions you can experience. Food is definitely very sensory and it's something we have to do every day to survive, but it's also pleasurable. And so that feeling of hunger and then getting it satiated with delicious food and being taken care of, there's something really powerful about that. I think that you can really win people over with a great experience because hunger is, it can rear its head, you know, and (laughs) hangry people are not fun, but once you get them quelled, you know, with a libation and a, and a bite, things start to settle in and you can really win some people over. (laughs) Well, Stephen, you've definitely won some people over with Miller Union over the years. And you opened the doors, I think, in 2009. And it's really become a landmark restaurant in Atlanta and really in the South. And it's been on all kinds of lists and won a bunch of awards, including a James Beard in 2017. What did you envision when you first opened the doors? Gosh, (laughs) we were terrified. It was my first restaurant and my business partner, Neil, and I were venturing out for the very first time. We were both at that point realized we were career restaurant people. Before Miller Union, I was working for Scott Peacock at Watershed and he was at an Italian restaurant. Both of us had been there for a long time. I was at Watershed for nine years and Neil was at Soto Soto for 10 years. And 
Both of us started at the bottom, worked our way up to the top. We learned a lot about the business. So when we went to open our own place, we had a vision for it and we had a mission. And I will say that we have not wavered from that mission. And that was to serve locally sourced food and great wines in a comfortable environment. Beyond that, there's a lot of poetic license with what you can do. And we definitely wanted to make a space that felt like it already had some patina because we were going into this industrial warehouse space and we felt like it needed some softness and some layers. So the look and feel of the restaurant was really important. We did no tablecloths. We wanted it to be a little more casual, but fine dining. I feel like we're one of the early places to have just the wooden table and kind of no pretense. Nobody was really dressed up on the floor. They wore jeans and a blue or gray shirt. We just wanted to feel kind of welcoming and Southern and familiar, but also a little bit new and fresh and modern at the same time. And I think we achieved that with the food being straightforward and approachable and relatable, but also a little hook or a little challenge in each one that might make you think a little differently about something. And I still like that approach where you take something familiar, but maybe just turn it on its side and look at it a little differently. And I think maybe that's the architecture side of me, the 3D approach to something and thinking about how it can be slightly altered, but still be the same. But we were terrified when we opened. We didn't know if we were going to be busy. It was in the middle of an economic downturn. The neighborhood was an area that seemed a little uncharted. Now, Bacchanelli was close by and so was Taqueria del Sol, but they were in the fancier part of that neighborhood. And we were on this one little street <laughs> that felt super industrial. We're across from some railroad tracks on a street that nobody really knew the name of. It's only a block long. It runs between Marietta and Howell Mill, both really pretty major arteries in the city of Atlanta. I just didn't spend that much time on the West side. So it was unfamiliar to me and I was a little nervous about people coming, but they sure showed up. And they're still showing up. They are. And we were one of the first restaurants to open up in that area at that time. There were not a lot of restaurant openings that year. And we got a lot more attention than we planned and we weren't quite ready for it, but we buckled down and we took all the reservations and made it work. Well, I've eaten there several times and it's always been a memorable meal, a memorable night. The service is so great and friendly and warm and every detail is spot on. And and I think the fact that you've been able to keep that going for 14 years, keep up the energy and the creativity and the attention to detail is kind of remarkable. When you stop and look at it and take a breath and think about it. It's a long time. I still work in the restaurant every week and I'm there almost every day. I think it helps the team, which is always a revolving door. It helps them understand that we care. Neil and I are there all the time and we're always kind of saying the same thing, reiterating our mission, our mantra, what we're trying to offer. And they want to work hard for us because we work hard for them. You know what I mean? And I think that really goes a long way. We're definitely very hands-on owners, and we have a presence there that I think the guests can feel. Well, so being in Atlanta, you've had some pretty cool customers show up in your restaurant. You've got to tell me what it was like to have Mick Jagger walk in. (laughs) It was a trip. We didn't know he was coming. We found out about 15 minutes prior It was a weeknight. I think it was a Thursday or something, but it was the eve of one of our anniversaries. I think it was right before our 12th. 
someone came to the front to the host stand and said, I need a table for, for five. And just so you know, Mick Jagger is part of that table. (laughs) We're like, what? And so he had some security people that bodyguards that travel with him and they kind of do a loop around the space and they didn't want to bring him in the front door because he's just so well known that it would just cause a stir and it would disrupt everything. So they asked if they could bring him through the kitchen. There's a door between the kitchen and the patio, and there's a table just outside of it that was free. And so they're telling us, like, he's on the way. He'll be here in five minutes. And one of the bodyguards is at our service entrance, and they brought him through the kitchen. He's walking, like, past between the walk-in cooler and the line where the grill guy stands and the fryers are right there. And he walked right by the fryer and right by my station. And, you know, people all around him, like, an amoeba guiding him and nobody saw him come in onto the patio because the way they <laughs> hover around him, they kind of just keep him covered. He's kind of a short guy. So it's easy to <laughs> cover to up. hide him. <laughs> yeah. And then he got into the banca and there's a little half wall there and he was sitting behind the half wall. So nobody could see him. <laughs> it was so interesting to watch because they really have it down to the science and all these other people are on the patio. They have no idea he's there. And he was great. Super nice really happy to be there. He was enjoying the food. His bodyguards were at a table nearby and I was walking by on the patio and they stopped me and they were like, Hey, this place is amazing. We love this food. Mick's really loving it. You should go say hello. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to bother him. Like he's in the middle of talking with his friends. And I don't know. I just feel like I would be interrupting. He's like, no, no, no. You should really say hello. He would love to meet you. So I went over to the table and just checked in on them. And he was super nice. He asked me a couple of questions about the restaurant and what we do. And his friends were having a great time. He was tucked in between people. And I was like, oh man, I wish I could get a photo with him, but I just can't ask him to get up. That would be really rude. So I went back in the kitchen and was telling some of the servers. I was like, man, it'd be so great to get a picture. If you see an opportunity, just let me know. And so they were getting ready to leave. And one of the servers came in and he goes, if you're getting ready to leave right now, he's standing up and they're all saying goodbye. He's like, you should go out there. So I went out there, say hello again. Thanks for coming in. And then I was like, hey, I hate to do this, but could we just get a photo just for fun? His bodyguard takes my phone. I had the camera open. He takes one picture and then hands it back to me. And I have no idea what it looks like. I'm like, okay, great. (laughs) At the time, it was still during the pandemic. We had our masks on and, and I was like, let's take our masks off just for this photo. And so we both took them down. He was smiling, like grinning from ear to ear. And it's posted on my Instagram. It is the best photograph. Like I couldn't believe how well it turned out. And we both have the biggest grins on our faces. I saw it. It's great. And I was just super (laughs) thrilled. The one photo that was taken was actually a really good one. And I was super proud to post it. And it got a lot of noise that day. And it felt great because it was the eve of our anniversary. And we were already in a celebratory mood. And gosh, Mick Jagger came in. I kind of made it sound like he was there to celebrate with us, but really they were just playing in town and somebody told him he should eat there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. And as a fellow musician, I'm sure you loved it. (laughs) Oh, it's a thrill. Such a thrill. So, Stephen, I want to turn to your books. You came out with a terrific cookbook in 2015 called Root to Leaf. And the very first words in that book were, eat more vegetables. Do you feel like that's happening? I do. I do. For the conscious eaters, yes, I do. And there's so much more enthusiasm around eating plants 
than I've ever seen. And it's wonderful to see that movement snowball. I think everybody who is conscious of health and vitality and also just living a good life, vegetables are a part of that. And to me, it's the thing that inspires me the most when it comes to cooking. And I would say vegetables are my muse and they are the inspiration for almost everything I do, especially working with so many farms here in Atlanta and watching the seasons change and and what they're planting and harvesting. It's a very interactive way to cook. And especially when you're buying large amounts of stuff, you know, for a restaurant that uses a lot of produce on the plate, it's challenging, but it's also rewarding in a sense that I'm proud of the main dishes just as much as I am the vegetable sides. And almost every table orders some vegetable sides or a vegetable plate as their entree or in addition to their entrees. And I think that's something that we're really known for. We pay so much attention to them and they really require a lot of nuance and detail. So it's a great way for young cooks to learn about seasonality and to carry that legacy onto the next generation of cooks and eaters. Well, so your new book is called Vegetable Revelations, Inspiration for Produce Forward Cooking. That's the whole title. And you've gone even deeper into the world of vegetables and what you can do with them. What's the biggest difference between the new book and Root to Leaf? Root to Leaf was my debut cookbook. And I wanted that to be more of a guide for seasonality and how to select, store, and prepare different vegetables throughout the seasons. It's kind of more of like a farmer's market shopper's guide. The recipes are simple and really dialed down to the least amount of ingredients possible to let the vegetables shine. Vegetable Revelations, I would say, is a little more complex in the flavor profiles. And a lot of that has to do with my awareness of pulling from different cultures as influence for vegetables. So being here in Atlanta, it's a very multicultural city. One of my favorite places here is the Buford Highway Farmers Market, international market that has a ton of produce, some of it really strange and odd things I've never seen before from other parts of the world, but also just really great spices and condiments and things from different cultures, from Asia, from Mexico and India, and all these interesting flavors that I think We can learn a lot from these other cultures on how they prepare vegetables and how we can maybe adapt it to influence American cooking. And what I love about American cooking in general is that it is and always has been a mashup of different cultures. And so to take that a step further and to explore what a cauliflower chot can be or making Italian style vegetable salad or you know, looking to Japan for a grilling technique. I think there's just so many things we can learn. And so I really had a great time exploring different flavor profiles and different techniques with vegetables and taking some inspiration also from some of my travels when I've been able to go outside of the country and taste other things. Now there's so many more places I want to go to try even more things. It could be like an endless research project. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds pretty fun. (laughs) Stephen, I opened up the book and it was dedicated to the memory of a friend of yours, Rebecca Harrigan, who you called your greatest cheerleader and who passed away in late 2020. Tell me a little bit about Rebecca and what she meant to you as a partner and a friend. 
Gosh, Rebecca, I swear she was my guardian angel. I met Rebecca probably in 2010, and she used to volunteer at the Peachtree Road Farmer's Market, and she would help with the chef demos. So I met her doing a demo at the market. You know, it's like Saturday morning. It's early. I'm tired from the night before, pulling all my ingredients together, scrambling to be ready on time. And she was just there helping me out. And she did that for any chef that came through. I just loved her energy. And she and I just kind of hit it off right away. And I thought she was funny and she was so helpful. Just one of those people that kind of lights up the room. And I just kept running into her here and there. I was diagnosed with cancer in 2012. And for some reason, I reached out to her to let her know. And I didn't even really know her that well, but I, I was compelled to inform her. I still to this day don't know why, because we weren't that close. But she started visiting me when I was in treatment and bringing me snacks or sitting with me while I was getting chemo. And we just got really close during that time. And she took care of me. You know, once I got through that experience, I realized that I had a lot of things I wanted to do once I felt healthy again. And I was kind of pissed because I felt like I'd lost some momentum in my career because I had to stop and take care of myself and get well. And I did it. When I came back, I was ready to to do a lot. And I wanted to write a book. I actually had started exploring the book idea before I got sick and I put it on hold. So I wanted to finish that book. And at that time, the idea of the book became very clear. It rootsly formed during that time. And I was talking to her about it. And she was a home cook and cooked seasonally, shopped at the market. She started the school garden at her kid's school. And she became the inspiration for Roots of Leaf because she was the type of person that was living that Roots of Leaf life. And I was like, I want you to tell me if you would make these recipes or not. If there's something you think you wouldn't make it, I'm not going to put it in the book. Her input to that was really valuable to me because she really loved that book and she was a big part of it and she helped shape it. I also worked with Susan Puckett, who's a journalist here in Atlanta. She was like my writing coach for that. And I started to get super busy and I was like, Rebecca, I, I think I might need to get an assistant because I just can't keep up with everything. Do you know any college students from the market or anything that might be able to help? And she was like, well, I could help you with that. And I was like, well, we're friends. I don't want you to be my assistant. You know what? Just let's just keep it as friends. And the more I talked about it, the more she said she could help me. And finally, I was like, okay, well, let's just do a trial and see how it goes. And then we ended up working together for nine years, 10 years. She became my trusty sidekick. And if I had to do an event, she would go with me. If I had to pack up food, and get it on the plane. Her husband would drive us to the airport. We would get the cooler checked. She started answering emails for me when I was busy at work. And she just became part of my team. She was like the satellite of Miller Union. And she got to know everybody at the restaurant. She knew all my PR people and would she would check in on stuff, making sure things were moving if I was busy. She was just really instrumental in boosting my career and literally was my biggest cheerleader. She was so proud of me. Everything I accomplished, she was just always making me stop and realize what an accomplishment it was. And she just was an amazing person. She had some health problems that were really unexpected. And she actually started working on vegetable revelations with me and just unexpectedly lost her life during that time. It was a real shock and it was right before Christmas and just a terribly unforeseen thing. And it was a real shock to lose her. Like one day she was there and the next day she was gone. 
And I became close with her husband and her kids who are now in college. She just was a, a big part of my life. And I still talk to the family here and there, but they don't live here in Atlanta anymore. The kids are out of state in school and, and her husband moved back to New York. So she was a big part of my life and my career. And I, I miss her. And I, I definitely feel her rooting me on still. And I, I know that she's proud of me and, and is watching somewhere. Well, it's a beautiful dedication to that book. And clearly you were lucky to have had so much time with her. Yeah, definitely. Stephen, I, I want to ask you about a recipe or two in, in the book. You grew up in Savannah. I've got to ask you about Savannah red rice. I'm guessing you've had a lot of versions of this. And of course, this is a recipe that goes back probably 300 years. What's the secret to yours and what does that dish mean to you? That's a great question. Savannah red rice definitely is an historic recipe, the original version is much like a paella in the sense that, you know, it's done in a skillet. It was made with rice from the low country and seafood and whatever else was available to put in it. But it was always tomato based. And I think that's kind of the distinction. And that's why they call it red rice. I usually had some paprika in there too. When we were growing up in Savannah, red rice was often a side dish at the cafeteria at school. It was very common, not so well-made, but just like a tomato-based rice that was like a vegetable side on the cafeteria line. But you would see it in soul food places or in sometimes it would be at a seafood restaurant as an option. But the true version is, you know, that cast iron skillet with the crispy rice on the bottom. The origins are complex, but influenced by all the different communities that settled there. That recipe is a really nostalgic taste to me. The okra is the inspiration for it. It's in the okra section. And it's just one of those things that I felt like would be a great expression in Vegetable Revelations because of the cultural mashup behind that recipe. And also, I think okra really makes that dish unique because it, it has that incredible like vegetal green quality to it that works so well with the stewed tomato and the rice and the seafood and the smoked sausage. And I actually did that dish with Sean Brock when he was on Mind of a Chef. We did that together. I was demonstrating it for him and it was really fun to make it with him because he got so excited about the outcome. And we were talking about the no peak method, which is really important. You have to leave the lid on and not open it up because it creates a layer of steam between the top layer of rice and the, the bottom of the lid that is incredibly important for cooking that top layer of the rice. And if you lift up the lid, then the top layer doesn't fully cook all the way. So it's a very important step. And it's one of those things you have to have a little bit of faith and maybe use the force to to make it work. (laughs) But if you follow the instructions, it's going to work. And then there's another little trick where when your timer goes off, you do a quick fluff with two forks and put the lid back on and let it rest. And that ensures that if there's any that are slightly under, that they'll take it the rest of the way through the residual steam that's released when you do the fluffing. So it's a really technically interesting (laughs) recipe, but it also has a lot of history and nostalgia in it too. All right. Well, I'm going to give it a go. (laughs) Well, Stephen, I've just got one more question for you. What does it mean to you to be Southern? I've lived in Georgia my whole life, except for the one year I spent in Paris. I think when you grow up in a place and you feel like you were fostered in a culture and you and you get some legacies that are passed down, it's a gift that you have 
to treasure and hold on to and respect and also pass down yourself, especially growing up in a place like Savannah. There's so much history there. And I felt like there were a lot of things that I don't want to forget and I want to hold on to and share with others. And something about just the state of Georgia, I have a real affinity for. I think it's a really unique place. There's so many different areas that have so much history and there's a lot to learn from our ancestors. And so I think it's important to be reverent of the place where you grew up and to usher in an understanding and a appreciation for these places. Well, Stephen Satterfield, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Sid. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Stephen Satterfield. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, preferably a good one, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my conversation with one of the most successful female artists in country music and the author of a feisty new cookbook, Miranda Lambert. We'll see you then.